You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. Welcome, Spot On listeners. I'm so excited about this um, episode. You are what your grandparents ate. This is going to be a fascinating episode here on Spot On. I have the author who wrote this book, You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, and it's what you need to know about nutrition, your experience, epigenetics, and she's going to explain that to us, and the origins of chronic disease. And, you know, we often talk about, you know, you want to fight heart disease and certain cancers and diabetes with a fork and a knife. And I lecture on this all the time, but our author today, who's coming in and wrote this book, tells me that it goes way back. Not just what you're doing. What you're doing is good as far as eating and your lifestyle, but it actually goes back to your grandparents. And boy, I cannot wait to pick her little brain about this. So today, my guest on Spot On uh, is uh, Judith Finlayson, and she's a journalist and author, and she has written a gazillion books, um, cookbooks, dozens of cookbooks, and she has written books on you know subjects such as personal well-being and women's history to developmental science, which is a lot of what we're going to be talking about. She was a former national newspaper columnist for the Globe and the Mail, and um, she lives in Toronto. In fact. She is calling in from Toronto today to uh, so that we could pick her brain. So with that, Judith, I want to welcome you to Spot On. Thank you for having me, Joan. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Wow. I have to tell you something. Uh, I got this book and I read it and this the, the whole thing is fascinating to me. So why did you write You Are What Your Grandparents Ate? Well, um, I think it's kind of an interesting story in that somebody gave me a copy of Dr. Barker's uh, book called Nutrition in the Womb. And uh, I read it and I was absolutely blown away. It really is the basis of what became the Barker Hypothesis, which was published in 1986 in the British medical journal, The Lancet. And um, that was the origins of an entire body of science now known as the developmental origins of health and disease. Basically, what Dr. Barker was saying uh, was that a lot of the origins of chronic illnesses like diabetes, like heart disease, are rooted in, the, in, in our experiences as fetuses in the womb. And he had a lot of evidence at that point even to back that up. So I started, I had never heard of it, and I, but I thought, well, gee, maybe this is just me. For some reason, I've missed this whole area of research. But I started asking people, like my doctor, who is very well informed um, and knows a lot, every health professional that I kind of ran into, 
And nobody had ever heard of this research, are the developmental origins of health and disease. So I decided that uh, I should really write a book about it so that these messages could become common knowledge because I think they're very important. So, so what you're saying, if I, I mean, I read the book, is basically that we know that genetic information gets handed down. Um, and we know that, like, you know, uh, family history of diabetes, you know, is, it runs in the family, and so you're at a higher risk. But it's, it's more than that, right, Judith? Yes, it's much more than that. And I'll, I'll kind of give you a little background on the Dr. Barker story and how he came to this. Because it's complicated science, but I think if I tell it as a kind of narrative, um, it's easier for listeners who are being introduced to the subject to kind of grasp it. He was an epidemiologist. He died uh, about 10 years ago. He was working in Britain on something called the Atlas of Mortality, where he was charting various disease rates and such across Britain. And this, this was in the 1970s. And what he was finding were things like heart disease being much more prevalent in poorer areas of the country, which now might not seem that kind of groundbreaking to us, but in those days, remember, people thought heart disease was a disease of affluence. It was linked to eating too much meat. He was also seeing links between the rates of maternal mortality and rates of death by stroke 60 to 70 years later. This led him to suspect that the origins of these conditions were related to something that happened while babies were developing in the womb, but he didn't have any data to back that up. So that became his kind of project, finding various databases. Uh, and I tell the story in the, the stories in the book because in some cases it was really, you know, quite risky. They, they almost didn't get these. Uh, but with the, his first was called the, the Hertfordshire Records. And these were collected under the guidance of E. Ethel Burnside, who was the, and don't you just love the title, Chief Inspector of, of Midwives and, and Health Visitors, who rode her bicycle around England, but had this team of women who went in and documented the birth weight of babies, who were most of whom were born at home at that point, and how they developed until their first birthday. So this gave him the basis for being able to run the data. They were bringing this information back and putting it into early computers at that point, early computers. And uh, he could show a link between babies that were born with low birth weight and the development of heart disease later in life. And that became the basis of the Barker hypothesis, which, as I said, was published in The Lancet in 1986. 
He then went on. Uh, once that was published, uh, people became aware of him and so on. And he was able to hook up with data from the Dutch hunger winter, which was a period in the Second World War when the Germans cut off food supply to Northern Holland. The Dutch keep very, very good records. And so their records of the experience of women who were pregnant during that time were almost like a controlled kind of research study. Uh, and then lastly, uh, the Helsinki cohort, which is a vast trove of information kept in Finland beginning in the 1930s, uh, which tracked children from birth and then really up until they were nine years of age. So given these huge databases, and then others have come into the, the mix over the years, he was able to move forward and really build the foundation of what has become the area of science known as the developmental origins of health and disease. So Judith, what you were saying that uh, low birth weight babies, these had a higher risk for disease later on, L low birth weight babies, often it means that the the woman, the pregnant woman didn't have enough food or didn't have enough nutritious food. So gave birth to a low birth weight baby, putting that baby at a higher risk uh, for problems down the road, even into their adult years. So that, to me, that's the signal. And same thing with uh, in the famine, that if there isn't good food, uh, good nutritious food while that baby is developing, it could have implications when they are adults. Is that really pretty much it? Well, that's it. Uh, that That's it in, in kind of a nutshell. Um, what um, One of the things that, that happens, which you can clearly link to, to uh, poor nutrition, is if you think about a baby's... Um, organs when they're forming in development, if the fetus is not given enough food, nutrition plays a key role in determining how well your organs are constructed. So if the fetus isn't getting enough nutrients, it's going to trade off or growth in organs like the kidneys, the pancreas, and even the heart in favor of the brain. It wants to protect the brain and the heart because those are more important than say the kidneys. If you take the kidneys, in the fetal world, the fetus doesn't need the kidneys because the mother's body does that work for it. So if its growth is jeopardized, it's an easy developmental decision to, to trade the development of the kidneys off. If it's not getting adequate nutrition, it can conserve resources and save the nutrition that it needs for say the heart and the brain by producing fewer nephrons. But after birth, a kidney with fewer nephrons needs to work harder to do its job. And this increases the risk of both hypertension and kidney disease, among other problems. So that's, that was really the focus of the early developmental origins of health and disease research, this kind of organ development and various other kind of body system developments 
um, that resulted from things like poor nutrition. Judith, that is absolutely fascinating. So it's like you're stealing from Peter to pay Paul. So if there isn't enough nutrients around, the brain and the heart are going to be you know, well nourished or, or developed, you know, more optimally. But something like the kidneys and and when you said that to me, I'm thinking pancreas and pancreas is all about you know push, uh, pushing out hormones, one of which is insulin. So maybe uh, an effect on the pancreas and increasing the risk potentially of diabetes later in life. Yes, absolutely. That, and there have been studies done on that. And, uh, you know, there, there, there's just, I mean, it's fascinating to me uh, who, who found this late in life, how much research there is on these kinds of connections, but how slowly it has been embraced and how it has not traveled downwards or trickled downwards to, you know, your average health professional um, you know, dietitians, nutritionists, and so on. But, you know, I, I really don't know why that is the case. I know, um, and I've heard this anecdotally from a lot of people who worked with him and people in the field, and, and, and Dr. Barker knew it. He knew that he was going to be kind of dismissed as a crackpot when he presented the Barker hypothesis in 1986. And really, that opinion kind of remained that 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 was the, the the kind of conventional wisdom until about the year two thousand. And at that point, um, a couple of major epidemiologists in the U.S. Uh, just said, "You know what? We can't ignore this anymore. This is really valid, and we have to start looking at it." Um, about that time, Dr. Barker was invited to address the National Institutes of Health, which I understand from, from people is that's kind of like, you're now okay, you, you, you have the seal of approval. Uh, and throughout the 90s, another science, most of the work, the initial work was epidemiological, but throughout the, throughout the 90s, Another science was really coming into the fore, and that's the science of epigenetics. And that is a whole other little aspect of this that's quite fascinating. So before we get into epigenetics, because that is fascinating, by the way, you know, what you just said is fascinating. So in other words, what's happening in the womb could be affecting the baby's uh, health not only initially when it's born, but later on in, in, in life, way later on in life, but also when they are, and I got this in your book, which I also thought was fascinating, what's happening while they're developing at adolescence and what they are doing with their diet or more importantly, even with their lifestyle can affect the sperm of, of the men. So this, I found this interesting. There was a section in your book that said that boys in adolescence, um, you know, who, you know, smoked while, you know, they were early adolescents when the sperm is being developed in the testes, that could have a negative effect on the type of sperm that is, you know, produced later on in life. And, you know, I, I have to tell you, it, it's 
only been recently, maybe maybe the, I don't know, last decade that we finally figured out that it takes two to tango when it comes to pregnancy. That is just not all about what the m- mom is doing and her diet and whatever, but actually what dad or the father is doing and, you know, what he is eating and if he is overweight or or what kind of his diet looks like. But you're saying now it's, whoa, honey, not just when they conceive the man and the woman, but you're saying that the sperm is being developed in an adolescent's, um, you know, age that can have an effect later on. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that is fascinating to me. Well, th- th- yes. And so that that research actually started about the same time that Dr. Barker was doing uh, his early research, his Atlas of Mortality. There was a Swedish epidemiologist named Lars Bergen who was studying the town that he grew up in. And he connected the dots between a grandfather's diet and his grandson's premature death. Males whose grandfathers ate too much around the time of puberty were inclined to die about six years earlier than the norm. Now, he was even more dismissed, uh, rapidly dismissed, than, than Dr. Barker. He submitted his re- that research to, uh, you know, the relevant journals, and they went through it all. It was peer-reviewed and so on. They agreed that his statistics were sound, but they just refused to publish it because they just thought it was completely off the wall. So he, there are so many, you know, things. If they didn't happen, what would have happened? What what would have happened? We wouldn't have had this research. Dr. Barker's, we had a number of stories there, but he managed to find, or he was found by a British geneticist named Marcus Pembry, who was beginning to have a sense that genes could be imprinted. And I'm going to go, and we're going to go back and explain that because this is epigenetics. And he, but he didn't have any epidemiological research to kind of support this. And Lars Bergen had realized that he needed a geneticist because he couldn't get his work published because nobody believed it, and they teamed up. Once they teamed up, uh, everybody snapped to attention. But the first study they did, their joint research, showed that the sons of young men who smoked just prior to puberty were more likely to be overweight beginning in, in adolescence. So what we're seeing now is just the beginning of another branch of developmental science, uh, which people are calling the paternal or origins of health and disease. And they're really looking at the influence of um, long-term health that is transmitted through the quality of male sperm. That it, it, this is absolutely fascinating. So again, when you were saying that 
that uh, uh, adolescent boys that we had a lot of calories around that affected their sperm. Uh, smokers, they smoked that affected their sperm. So again, it's what's not only it's in the womb, it's what's happening eating in your environment as you're growing into an adult that could be uh, affecting your offspring. So, you know, all right, so we can't control what grandma did. I can't control uh, what my mother did. But, you know, I can control what I can do, you know. And so can you tell us a little bit about epigenetics and what's that all about? Well, epigenetics is the science that was a, a it had really it was kind of getting off the ground in about the 1950s, but by the 1990s it was having uh some impact uh particularly through a famous study called the Agouti Mo study where they could show that health um um problems could be corrected by the addition of um, B vitamins, folate B12, and there was a third one, I forget which one. Um, and they, the, the, they, the agouti mice were very sickly mice to just try and sum up. But by giving them these vitamins, they could improve the health, they could correct these health problems, not only in the first generation of offspring, but in the second generation of offspring without further supplementation. So in other words, something was happening to the reproductive cells of those mice um, that was being transmitted to um, following subsequent generations. So epigenetics is the basis of this, and epigenetics to just kind of try and explain it to you in a nutshell. It is much more complicated than the concept of not having enough efferons because the fetus is trading off growth of the kidneys. But genes are composed of DNA, which is, as you know, which is a hereditary material in humans. DNA is made up of four chemical building blocks called bases, and how those bases are sequenced helps to determine how your genes function. But in addition to that, the activity of your genes is influenced by factors that are beyond the genetic code, and epigenetics is the study of those factors. So there's factors, those epigenetic factors is things that you may be doing, your diet now that may be, or your environment that you're in, or if you smoke, or you drink too much. So in other words, you know, you were dealt with, you were dealt with when you were born, but what we're saying here with epigenetics, you can modify your risk or improve your health by your diet and lifestyle. Is that it? That's absolutely correct. Uh, and, and there are many, many, there are more and more studies being done now that show very clearly that lifestyle modifications like a healthy diet, like uh, adequate exercise, and even things like mindfulness meditation, yoga, and so on, improve gene expression and can improve, can reverse some of these changes. And I'm going to explain how some of those changes happen. Um, 
that are passed on through the generation. And that's because your genes are fixed. We know that. So people are going to say, you know, I know that my genes are fixed. But how your genes express themselves changes in response to environmental impacts, like what you eat, uh, or things like chronic stress, which you have less control over, but things like exercise and mindfulness help you to balance things like stress. So, you know, it's really a very holistic approach to health uh, when you come right down to it. But I'm going to, I, I, I want to tell you, you were asking about how genes, uh, you know, the idea like Lars Bergen's um, uh, grandson, father, grandfathers and grandsons, how experiences for past generations can affect your health and well-being. And so what we have are the, these epigenetic changes, these impacts of things like poor nutrition um, will regulate how your genes express themselves. Your genes are fixed, but their expression changes in response to environmental impacts like poor nutrition, as I said. And these changes can set the stage for disease development over the long term. Um, it's easy to visualize how this happens. They, they, it happens with reproductive cells. That's how these hereditary changes are transmitted. It's easy to visualize uh, a female fetus developing in her mother's womb. It, we tend to forget that a female's eggs are formed while she is in the womb. A female is born with all of her eggs. So it's not hard to see that the quality of her reproductive cells, like all the other cells that are forming at that point, is affected by the air her mother breathes, the food she eats, the stress she experiences, and the toxins she is exposed to. And as we noted, in terms of reproduction, the vulnerable period for boys is around puberty, when their sperm cells are forming. So how this happens is that experiences during these key developmental times, that is, when the woman's eggs are forming, are when the male's sperm cells are forming, leave what the best way to describe it is as kind of biological memories on those reproductive cells because those reproductive cells are in a plastic stage, they're forming. Uh, and in scientific terms, these memories are known as epigenetic modifications. And these changes, the epigenetic modifications, which remain on the genes like as an impression, a biological memory, can be passed on through the generations. And that process is known as transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. Okay, so, so now you have this, but again, what you do uh, what you do as an adult, uh, just say if you are at risk for type 2 diabetes and you have a, a poor diet and overweight and, and are inactive, 
uh, you're going to have a, a better chance of developing type 2 diabetes. If you do the inverse, where you say, oh my goodness gracious, I'm at high risk because grandpa and, and my father had uh, diabetes, so therefore I'm going to eat a healthy diet, stay at a healthy body weight, exercise regularly. Um, and but by doing that, you, that, that that's going to turn on or turn off that DNA, so that the person that does the healthy lifestyle, it may not go on to becoming um, uh, diabetes because he has done all these wonderful things in his diet and environment that didn't turn on that diabetes becoming. Is that basically it? Yes, that's basically it. Uh, it it's more the, the image of the genes rather than turning off and turning on, although people do talk about that. But a more appropriate uh, image of how it works is kind of like turning the volume on a, a radio up or down. So you, you, you regulate it. And that's why, uh, and, and so, you know, we're seeing more and more studies. So, you know, what I like to say is, yes, you were born with genes and you may have gotten a few that, you know, predispose you uh, for bad health, but, but you can... What you do with those genes is much more important in terms of how your health evolves. Um, but you know why we we experts now are recommending at least three months before uh, couples even attempt to get pregnant, three months of preparation, uh, and that's because the fetus is most vulnerable to environmental impacts like poor nutrition, stress, or trauma during the first eight weeks after conception. And most women don't know whether they are pregnant for at least part of that period. Um, and from the male perspective, as we've said, the paternal role in pregnancy is most significant in the preconception period. It takes about three months for new sperm to develop and to fully mature. Um, we know that sperm quality plays a major role in fertility and whether you get pregnant or not. Uh, it also has an impact in, in the, the rate of miscarriage. And uh, it also um, uh, influences patterns of gene expression uh, that sperm transmit. And improvements in diet and, and exercise have been shown to improve gene expression in sperm, which reduces the risk of metabolic problems in offspring. Again, fascinating. You know, uh, the latest dietary guidelines just released in 2020 had added to it um, you know, it used to be that these guidelines dealt with healthy Americans aged two and uh, older. Now they are looking at this. I mean, better late than never, but they're looking at the first 1,000 days. And what that is, the time that during pregnancy the child is conceived all the way to age two. And but what's even fascinating, what you're saying, Judith, is it's even before that. It's, it's, it's prior conception. And again, takes two to tango. It's just not her. It's what he's doing also and what they're doing together to, uh, you know, improve the quality of the baby that's conceived. Yes, that's absolutely correct. It does take two, two to tango. 
Um, and it's interesting, you know, how women, the moment a woman is, is thinking of getting pregnant, she's supposed to stop drinking, stop smoking, you know, make all these lifestyle modifications. But meanwhile, her partner is free to, uh, you know, drink to his heart's content and, uh, and whatever. And we're now seeing that it does take two to tango. So, right. Right. Absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Uh, I have to tell you, we're going to put a link uh, to Judith's book up on the uh, spot on Facebook page. You are what your grandparents ate. And it's just fascinating. Um, and it's great. Again, we love that the fact that the science is evolving. Um, and we know more and more that, you know, what happens to to your health has maybe been handed down generations, but more importantly, empowering about what you can do right now, knowing if you have certain risk factors to reduce that risk. And also, if you choose to add on to another generation by conceiving a child and moving forward, what an effect your diet is right now and during conception is. Absolutely fascinating. Judith, I uh, I am, I'm telling you, I read this book. My mouth was open all the time. I, I, I should show you a picture of it because I highlighted everything in yellow. So that your entire page now is yellow. There's no, there's no white and black print anymore. The whole thing is yellow because I, highlight, I highlighted everything. So Judith, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on Spot On and sharing this such important research with us. Well, thank you, Joan, for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salgy Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?